All right, what's up and welcome to episode number 98 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Friday, June 15th, 2018. We are getting up there, getting up there in the years, long in the teeth. We should have retired a long time ago, but we're here. I'm Josh Cannon and uh, my co-host is Mike Brown. Hey there. Um, I wish I could say I'm doing uh, well, but... I mean, things could be worse, but uh, this stupid ingrown toenail came back, so uh, dealing with that. So um, I I have some uh, pain pills in my system right now, so I'm a bit loopy. (laughs) Yes, what started uh, out what started out as a big joke because it's like, wow, can't believe Mike is elaborating so much on such a seemingly small problem is now actually become a more serious problem. (laughs) <laughs> to the point to where Mike is fucked up right now on pills. Did you ever think <laughs> yeah. that would ever happen on this podcast? <laughs> I never did. I mean, I've been I've been semi-buzzed or borderline uh-huh. drunk before on this podcast, but never did I think Mike would be hopped up on painkillers for the podcast. You realize <laughs> you realize this is how like um D- uh, uh, Danny Bonaducci lives like every day of his entire life. Just and that's surprised. I Just mean, some take kind a of, look at him. Yeah, well, yeah. right. Yeah, he looks like a piece of beef jerky. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, he goes through his whole life, like, just in some pill haze. Folks, I don't mm. know if that's true or not. I don't know why I say stuff like that. <laughs> Shit that could legally get me in trouble. I don't know why. But uh, I don't think I don't think Danny's ever going to listen to this podcast. You just have uh, SDS, sudden dick syndrome. That's what That's what you have right now. SDS sudden dick syndrome. Um, okay. There's a lot of there's a lot of directions I could go with that joke that are probably not the most politically correct. So I'm not going to. Anyway, this is a podcast we host about uh, unsolved mysteries. Um, and if you want to kick us some shekels on Patreon, you can do so by going to Patreon.com/slash/UncoveringExplainedMysteries. I actually just posted a bonus segment on there, a a lost love segment. For so, for, oh. yeah. So for those of you. Who uh, those oh, okay. rare ten percent of you out there who do like the lost love segments? Uh, I cover pretty much one of the only ones I I, I like. Um, what was that one? It was a case of uh, Duncan Gilmore and uh, Patsy. Uh, was it Patsy? It wasn't Patsy, right? I don't know. But Duncan Gilmore. Basically, it was this chick back in the fifties. How this this story plays out the same all the time. Her family mm-hmm. pressures her into being with this one guy who has a nice car and is well liked by the family but she ends up falling in love with this military guy at this park oh yeah 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 that that's a good one it's really sad especially what happened with her mom and things like yeah, that. yeah it's very so. sad it's very tragic and then it's even well i'm not going to give it away so anyway yeah. you, you, if you want to hear that you can go there and uh we have merch now it's official we have official uncovering explained mysteries merch um link in our description the description to this podcast First thing you should see is a link, and you can buy a t-shirt, and they look dope. They've come in, uh, a lot of our fans have gotten theirs, and um, they look really good, and they're sending in pictures on our Facebook group. So if you want to see our beautiful fans, which why wouldn't you, and you want to participate in a very thriving Unsolved Mysteries uh, Facebook fan group, just search Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries on Facebook, and you will be able to find it. Um, yeah, my possum, as I mentioned before, is actually, uh, it's like, 
not back, but it's like visiting here and there. Like I hear it from time <laughs> to time. But I have concluded that the son of a bitch possum did give my house fleas. Uh. Because I noticed there was a bunch of fleas popping all around uh, oh, recently. No. And um, I actually checked the little crack in the uh, there, this little trap door in my closet where uh, you can take the trap door away and you can work on the pipes for the uh, bathtub if you needed to. And that's where the possum likes to hide. And I noticed because I taped up the trap door stuck mm. it on the tape are a bunch of fleas. Mm. And there are fleas in my house, so and I know possums are like a, a haven for fleas, and I have no pets. Oh, and so. fleas multiply, so I would, you know. Yeah, I know. I need to get on that soon. It it really sucks, <laughs> but um, I'm just imagining you wait, you you procrastinate, and then it's just your whole house is just a a haven for fleas. Yeah, it's uh, fleas from other places. They they uh, call up. And they're like, "Oh, is there is there a opening over at, at Josh's place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come right over." Oh God, Mike with the dad jokes. <laughs> um, but yeah. I besides that, I just released a video for um, probably the best song I've ever written. Uh, I'll I'll probably talk about that more at the end of the podcast. But yeah, um, about uh. People in their big fucking trucks. Hell yeah, Bubba. All right, Mike, you just awakened the demon, man. Yeah, hell yeah. I want to tell you guys, I'm from the South, motherfucker, and we like our trucks big, and we like our beers cold, all right? And I did a song called Big Fucking Trucks on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash dancingwithghosts. You can check that out there. Anyway, uh, so we were going to talk about today on the podcast, we were going to talk about the mystery hum segment, and I was so like geared up and jazzed, because I was like, yes, I remember that segment as a kid, it, it literally fucked me up for a good while, because like I thought, well, you know, what if I start hearing this mysterious humming noise, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, Mike's like, as, you know, it's an issue we deal with every single week now, and it's getting beyond old but we'll bring up segments and and it's usually mike going didn't we already talk about that or i think we already talked about that <laughs> and i'm like jesus christ does it ever end with the did we already talk about it or not you'd think either one of our memories would be better but it's not and turns out we did talk about the mystery yeah, hum already exactly. <laughs> episode number 28 which was probably two years ago which reminds me um I don't know exactly when we started this podcast, but it was in June sometime. And I'm just going to go mm -hmm. ahead and say this is Mike's, me and Mike's two year anniversary uh, doing this podcast. Just, go, I'm just going to give it a moment for the applause to stop. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you, thank you. All right, now you're just, now you're just patronizing us by continuing to clap. I know, <laughs> I know, it's become your favorite podcast, and you're welcome. Um, yeah, two years doing this shit. Um, it may not be time flies. Yeah, it does when you're having fun. And I mean, it may not be a good podcast and it and it may not be informative, but um, eh, it, it's consistent. I, I would say it's better. It, it, it's 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 gotten a lot better. Like if we just stayed the same uh, when we, you know, from the moment we started and like didn't and remained stagnant and didn't get better, then I could, you know, I'd be like, yeah, it's not that good. Well, but. I think editing has a lot to do with that. I, I, you guys don't know this, but I edit out a lot. Well, it's also it's also the sound quality. Yeah, that's the other thing, and the fact that we have more experience with 
communicating with each other and, and stuff like that. So when it comes to doing a podcast, like that's that comes with time. Like you'll hear a lot of early podcasts with more than one host and they're like interrupting each other and, uh, you know, you know and, and that'll still happen every now and then. But as you go further and you do more, like you learn different intricacies and different stuff like that and no, get to know your co-host better. So you get to know what, how their thought process is and uh, what their setup is. So um, things like that. Literally nothing Mike said is true. All I do is go in and edit out all the bullshit that I normally would have left in in the past. That's it, folks. That's the secret. <laughs> That's the secret. That's how we do it. I just edit out all the crap that well, I would have normally left too. in. There's that too, but really there there are things that come with experience, folks. Like Mike's racist rants and my... <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Like, if, if anybody's doing racist rants, it's this guy over here. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> now we're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> oh, just kidding. Neither one of us, ra neither one of us is racist and at this point. No, I, I was clearly saying it in a sarcastic tone of voice. Anybody that would take that seriously. I'm at this point, if you can't take a Shame joke, if you can't take a joke, then our podcast is fucking not for you, man. Just listen to something <laughs> else. I mean, really, it's it's just not. Um, hopefully, we've like weeded out all the car talk listeners, though. For some reason, our podcast is recommended to like every single stuffy NPR <laughs> listener out there, and you know they're expecting some. Hello, welcome on today's This American Life. It's Josh Cannon, and he's discussing his battle with making it through college. It's like, no, we're not that podcast. We're not classy. We're not intelligent and we're not informed. We're just highly opinionated. So <laughs> I'm hoping we've just kind of like got that crowd that's willing to go along with that. And I would say we're not, we're not stupid. Like, I don't, I don't think that's I mean, fair. a fine line I think, between I think, stupid I think and intelligent, intelligent. And I mean, I think we're somewhere in between that line. <laughs> I mean, is there a fine line? I don't know. Um, but yeah, Anyway, uh, enough reminiscing. Maybe we'll have like a birthday cake or an anniversary cake later. We'll eat it on <laughs> air because I think that makes for good radios when you eat into the microphone. We might do that. I mean, I don't know how you're, we're going to share it because like you're going to ship a cake over here. Yeah, like, well, how the hell? one piece, one piece of cake. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll, yeah, and I'll have mine and we'll synchronize when we start eating it and be a bunch of mushing sounds and chewing and smacking. People love hearing that magnified in their ears. Yeah, it's called ASMR. Oh my god, don't get me started on ASMR. Anyway. <laughs> uh ASMR kind of bugs me. It I feel like they're like manipulating my mind with their whispers and shit. If you don't know what ASMR is, go and look it up online and tell me that's not slightly it just doesn't slightly creep you out. Some people find it very enjoyable and relaxing. I just find it weird. Mike, that is the loudest typing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's not typing. I'm trying to do ASMR with my pen. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty much what Mike's doing. It's just like hitting. It's it's uh, it's weird. It's like rub scraping your fingernails down plastic stuff and tapping DVD cases and whispering really quietly right into the microphone. Hey, today we're going. <laughs> That's to the creepiest stuff there. Like I've seen the video. You know, there's the girls or whatever that are just. I'm like somebody's getting their rocks off with this. Oh, absolutely. Clearly. It's like these hot girls and they're just whispering and like right into the <laughs> mic. They're like. Hey, my tingle heads. Today we're going to talk about my day. Yeah, it's going to be real nice. 
It's creepy. Uh, it's creepy. Uh, <laughs> oh. All right, ugh. so we probably lost 90% of our listener base at this point with all of our, our aimless <laughs> chit-chat. So let's, that 10% that's still remaining, let's go into some mysteries. Yes. I guess um, we didn't talk about the order. Should we uh, do... Uh, I'll, I'll start with the old Paul Whipkey. All right. Whipkey. Oh, whippersnapper. So... On August 17th, 1958, a fish and game warden in Death Valley, California, found a car abandoned in the desert 42 miles from the nearest town. The keys were still in the ignition and there was no sign of foul play. The car was registered to Lieutenant Paul Whipke of Fort Ord, California, almost 500 miles away. The Army reported that Whipke had been missing for five weeks and in fact was wanted as a deserter. But there was a problem. By all accounts, Paul Whipke was the perfect soldier. No one who knows him believes that he could have been a deserter. Carl Whipke is Paul's brother. I don't think Paul deserted. It was completely out of character for Paul to do such a thing. He was a loyal American soldier devoted to his work. I think the army knew exactly what had happened to him, and I think it was part of a big smokescreen cover-up. Paul Whipke was an ROTC honor graduate. After basic training, he won a spot in the Army Aviation School. In 1957, at Camp Desert Rock in Nevada, Paul flew an observation plane during testing of the atomic bomb. He was exposed to radioactive fallout, and it's and soon after that, when it ugh, fucking this isn't my fault. This is whoever wrote this, like fucked up and used bad English here. He was exposed to radioactive fallout, fallout and it was soon after that unusual blotches appeared on his skin. That's not good. Yeah, that's, I'm no doctor, but um, you don't want radioactive blotches on your skin. Several months later, stationed at Fort Ord, California, Paul had to have all of his teeth removed. Ew. That's crazy that radiation... I mean, yeah, I know radiation can do like literally all kinds of horrible things, but I didn't know it could make your teeth just straight up fall out of your mouth. or Or maybe they got like... I don't know, like some kind of infection or something where they had to be removed. Mm -hmm. That's crazy, though. So on July 10th, 1958, late one afternoon, Paul left Fort Ord. He told friends that he was headed for the town of Monterey, less than a mile away. But Paul never returned. The next morning, Paul was reported AWOL, and 30 days later, he was declared a deserter. The following week, his car was discovered in Death Valley. The Army says that on the day Paul left, he apparently ended up at White's Motel in Mojave, California, some 350 miles from the base, Paul had signed the motel's guest registration. Army investigators say they found a gasoline receipt in Paul's car. It showed that he had bought gas in Mojave before his car ended up in Death Valley, 145 miles away. Now, Death Valley is definitely does live up to its name. It's one of the hottest places in the United States, if not the world. So, not there is not that many instances where someone's going to drive on purpose in the middle of death Valley somehow somewhere and just leave or just leave their car there and just like that's just extremely mysterious like just that by itself is one of those things you're like okay there's something else going on here nobody's voluntarily driving to death Valley and just leaving their car that's not happening so on the very morning Paul turned up missing, two soldiers stripped his room at Fort Ord. Everything was removed, including Paul's personal belongings. 
According to his brother Carl, this was an odd and perhaps illegal procedure. <laughs> Definitely odd. Uh, that's another reason why I think there was something else involved here with this disappearance. I don't think it was just he willingly disappeared or so on and so forth, or maybe he did, maybe he did willingly disappear, but I don't, I don't think foul play was involved here, but I do think that there was something with Paul where he ended up deciding to do some kind of clandestine top secret government thing and then either did that voluntarily or was forced to do it. Or maybe it was one of those things where he was, he didn't have that long to live. So he decided to do something. Uh, and that's a way of how he kind of cover covered up how, you know, he would eventually die, which could be really, really messed, a really, uh, messy and painful death considering all the radiation he was exposed to. So on the very morning, Paul turned up missing. The two soldiers came in and stripped, uh, his room. Uh, his brother, Carl is quoted here. Regulations state that the next of kin or legal representative must be notified before packing belongings. And they didn't notify us at that time. I was very suspicious of this action as soon as I discovered it had taken place. Looks like they're trying to cover something up, doesn't it? They're going in, they're removing all his belongings. Reminds me of this other, what was it, a Roswell thing? Or some other UFO? Some other case we talked about where it was there was this uh, uh, military guy and they came in and took all his stuff out of his uh, room and so on and so there, forth. Dude, there are several cases where the government or the military does that on, yeah. on Unsolved Mysteries that I've seen. Mm -hmm. And like that's, it's just this, this case is, it kind of shapes up to be like another one of those like government cover ups, you know, yeah. at, at its, at its peak. As usual, uh, they did a great job with reenactment. Uh, this time it's supposed to take place in the, in the forties, I think. Or the 50s and um yeah in the 50s and they do a good job they have the right cars you know for the time period the uh the the costume design and everything and do a good job recreating the time period yeah they always do on this show that like anytime except for that one time we saw remember that one uh with the psychic lady was supposed to take place in the 80s, but it looked like it took place in the 50s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one we did recently. Yeah, that one, that yeah. one didn't really look very much like the 80s at all. So, there are some instances where... I I'm thinking that might be cost-cutting, you know? Well, I think, too, like, the fact that, that, you know, they're out in Burbank, like, with all those uh, deserts and shit out there, it's probably mm -hmm. easy, like, if they need to do a period piece, it's probably easy to just, like, secure, like, a... 1940s Mustang or something just take it out to the desert where you know it doesn't look it's not like oh that desert is clearly a 1990s desert as opposed to a 1940s yeah. desert so they just throw an yeah. old car out or there 50s desert yeah, yeah they just throw an old car out there and bam hey it's the 1940s I, it's actually kind of brilliant if you think about it because if you put the same car in a city now everything's gonna have to look all the buildings are going to have to look old, too. But if you put it in a desert, it's like, well, hey, you know, the deserts look the same for hundreds of yeah. years. So, Yeah, so four weeks after Paul was reported AWOL, a witness driving through Death Valley saw his car. He said it was being driven by a man in a military uniform. However, when Paul left Fort Ord, he was wearing civilian clothes. When the car was found, a pile of cigarette butts was on the ground next to it. Paul didn't smoke. 
Also troubling to Paul's family was the fact that the army waited nine months before looking for his body. It was only by accident that Carl Whipke heard anything about the car at all. Nine months, that's a long time. A baby could have been born in that time. Yeah, exactly. The only way that I learned about the car was due to an unofficial call I placed to an enlisted man at Fort Ord. Within half an hour, he called back and was very excited, and he said that this is classified information and requested that I not tell anyone where I had heard it. I find that funny. He called back, and he was very excited. <laughs> he was like, oh my god, something exciting. Holy sh... I got it. It's very classified information. <laughs> But don't tell anyone that you heard it. My job is so boring. <laughs> the investigation to Paul's disappearance also troubled his commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Lewis. I found it almost unbelievable that he would be classified as a deserter. I was curious about what the basis for it was, and I was quickly and promptly told, Charlie, forget this. The case has been closed, and I would recommend that you don't carry it any further. In essence, I was told to shut up and drop it, and blow away. And now I find that terminology pretty funny. Like, who says that? Yeah. Blow I, away. Yeah, I thought, yeah, it's every time they have these old timers on uh, Unsolved Mysteries, I'm always like really curious as to like what kind of like antiquated, you know, idioms and, and phrases are they going to use, you know, that I've never heard of, you know. And yeah, that was definitely one that caught my attention. Shut up. And blow away. I always liked the uh, the thing that uh, the the commander or the general or whatever in the Roswell segment said yeah. um, to uh, Glenn Dennis. He's like, uh, if if uh, if you go around telling people uh, what you saw here and spreading a bunch of rumors, then you uh, someone will will be picking your bones out of the sand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love how just nonchalant he is about that 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 type of threat. It's just like, yeah. Spread these rumors, someone will be picking their bones out of the sand. See, that's one you of those, me? um, that's one of those you come up in the car, you, you come up with in the car on the way back from getting dissed by someone type comebacks. Like, I, I never, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, like, I can never come up with those in the moment. It's like someone's like, uh, like, hey, what's up, douchebag? And, you know, blah, blah. blah. And I'm just like, yeah, well, well, y your mom. Double dumbass on you. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, yeah, my yeah. mom's dead. And it's like, yeah, of course, of course she is. Because that's, that's the only. Yeah. Every time you say that, the person's mother. Yeah, it's like, dead. it's like the whole thing in Star Trek 4 where the guy's like, hey, dumbass. And it was like, well, double dumbass on you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Charles Lewis and Paul Whipke were both stationed in Nevada during 1957. Lewis recalls the day that he saw two men in plain clothes talking to Paul. I noticed that they had gone directly to the airfield instead of reporting the operations, which was required for a purpose of security. So I asked them for their identification. They showed me their military identification cards, and the picture did verify who the two were. Over the next few weeks, Lewis often saw Paul talking to the same two men. When Lieutenant Whipke would come in after they had departed, you could feel a rigidity in his personality traits and his mannerisms. In hindsight, Lewis now believes that Paul may have met with the two men for one simple reason. During that era, there was a tremendous amount of nationwide recruiting conducted by the CIA, and with Lieutenant Whipke's qualifications, he would have been an exceptional candidate for such an assignment. Paul's brother Carl thinks there may be some truth to this as well. January of the year he disappeared, he told me during the telephone conversation that he was going to be going on an assignment, and that he was going to make a name for himself. 
and before he could tell me what it was, he was interrupted by some officers moving in the proximity of his desk, and he could no longer talk to me about the subject. I theorized that Paul was recruited into an Army-slash-CIA joint program that was going on at the time. When Paul left Fort Ord, he drove to the town of Mojave, California, and checked into White's Motel. There's a possibility that he was met there by Army intelligence agents, or the CIA, and transported to Southeast Asia, possibly from Edwards Air Force Base, which is nearby. Carl now believes that his brother was assigned to a secret mission and left his car with the Army. He thinks that they kept it four weeks before driving it into the desert, but not knowing the answer leaves him always wondering. I think the Army took his car out to the desert to get rid of it. Out of sight, out of mind. If they would just say, yes, he died on a secret assignment, we could live with that. We're all loyal American citizens in our family, and we could buy that. And until the Army tells us what happened, there will be no peace in our family. In 1982, the Army reviewed Paul Whipke's case and found no basis to support his status as a deserter. Two months later, his final status was officially changed from deserter to died in the line of duty. But it still is a a confusing, uh, muddled mess uh, when it comes to his what happened to him. Like his family still doesn't really know for sure what happened. They just know, oh, he's no longer a deserter. He just died in the line of duty. Or I would love to know, like, just like get details on all the secret CIA, FBI, yeah. black ops kind of shit that was done. It reminds me of that case uh, that was featured on the show where this daughter, she was looking for her father and she found these documents that were talking about it. And her father was a pilot, remember? And there's this whole thing that he just disappeared. And then there's all these other people who are coming up and saying that he was doing these clandestine secret flight missions and so on and so forth. And she got documents from the government with stuff blacked out. But anyway, I don't have much else to say about Paul Whipke except it definitely is a very mysterious case. Like I, I, I thought it was a good case because it was there. There was uh, this. There's definitely something going on here like leaving a car in the middle of death valley and the his family doesn't know where he is the military comes in and cleans out his uh quarters and everything and i i think he was on some sort of secret mission and i think either he died or uh um doing during that mission or or uh or it's one of those things where there are cases where they actually they started a new life and that's even crazier. Yeah, there was something you know, the on where they there was something in the news recently about a guy who was uh, found like 35 years after he was reported missing, and it was uh, God, I, some Yahoo News thing, and mm-hmm. I can't uh, I can't exactly remember what it was, but um, geez, I'm looking at Yahoo News right now. Chris Hardwick reportedly accused of long term abuse. The Nerdist founder is completely Oof. scrubbed from the website after his ex ex girlfriend appears to accuse him of sexual abuse. Dang, Jesus! The thing is with the with the accusations, it's like, yes, some of them are real and they're they are based on some uh, truths, but you none of you don't know that yet, and there's just so much trigger happy nonsense going on. If an accusation comes out, it's just an automatic. 
let's fire this person. It's like let's they try have this like them out. scorched earth policy now. Uh, every like yeah. across the board, it's like as soon as that shit comes right, up, I'd be like, wait for proof at least or something, or go to trial or more to come out. You know, like Stallone has a recent thing coming out, like. Somebody's trying to accuse him of sexual whatever, like sometime in the nineties. So, yeah, whatever. I don't even want to get on that topic. <laughs> I don't either. I'm just. It's just one of those things. It's like I always find it funny that Yahoo ended up doing news. It's like it makes it you know Yahoo News just sounds silly. I know it does. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a little embarrassing that I get my. I you know I get a lot of my headlines from Yahoo News when I'm checking my email. <laughs> but you know what? Honestly, a lot of uh, like millennials and even non millennials like a lot. They get it from Facebook. So well, a lot of people get their news from these email sites. You know, they go to check their email and boom, there's some there's some little news. Tidbits. Or they just get it from Facebook. I mean, I could tell you what the hell people aren't doing for all you out there getting all like high and mighty just because I get my news from Yahoo. A lot of that nobody's reading the fucking newspaper. I can tell you that. They're not reading the newspaper. They might watch, you know, some quote unquote reputable news channel, but all those news channels are, are have taken sides. Yeah, and some of them are actually owned by less than desirable companies so fake news it's all fake news god <laughs> i hate that donald trump started that term fake news because now it's like it's like a buzzword well there's some of it is fake but he's just kind of you know he's now it's a buzzword and now people are just misusing it so yeah move on <laughs> to our next case which is the story of richard bockledge that last name sounds like a mouthful of broccoli or something. Bocklage. <laughs> uh, or a mouthful of something. I don't know. Mouthful of cavities. That's a... Um, that is a... Blockage. Mouthful of cavities is... Who did that song? Um, no Rain. Um, anyway, it's a 90s band. Whatever, man. I can't believe my brain sucks this bad. <laughs> Never thought I would get to a point in my life where it would just suck this bad. And it's only getting worse. It's 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 full of of uh, some kind of blockage. Yeah, it really it feels like Richard it is blockage. sometimes. It feels like there is a thinking a thinkingness that should be happening in my head, and there's like a valve that is cutting off the thinking power from happening. <laughs> and if the valve was your, your brain is constipated, that's that's what it yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels like thought <laughs> constipation whenever I'm on the podcast or in life in general. So let's talk about this guy, Dick Dick Bach. Dick Bocklage. Um On September 18, 1980, police in Kansas City, Missouri, responded to reports of a shooting. Investigators found a murdered female victim. Her name is Tanya Koprick. She had emigrated from Yugoslavia to study medicine in the United States. She was determined to beat the odds, to build a career and a life in a new country. By the age of 34, Tanya had achieved her goal. She was a doctor at a Kansas City hospital, and she had also found someone to share her successful life with. Richard Bocklage was a pharmacy student at the University of Missouri. He was a young and dynamic and quite attentive man to Tanya. Soon after they met, he moved into her apartment. Six months later, Richard proposed and Tanya accepted. But her friends weren't so sure it was the perfect match. Tanya's friend, Ivan Gregorick, had his reservations, quote, I did not really like him because he used her financially and morally. 
He was using her for a lot of things, like using her credit card and her car, just everything. Richard spent more and more time with Tanya and less time in class. He was on his way to flunking out. Jane Lee was Richard's academic advisor, quote, he was, he was not real motivated. He wanted to be a pharmacist, but you have to want it bad enough to, to vote many, many hours to academic study, to the academic study end of it. And um, that is true. I dated a girl who was a pharmacist or who was trying to become a pharmacist. And you do have to kind of, mm -hmm. you, you have to be very dedicated to it for a while. But I will say, if you do want to get into that industry, the medical industry, and you do want to make a lot of money, I'd say being a pharmacist or like a nurse are probably the two quickest ways. A pharmacist probably more so, because I think you only have to do pharmacy school for like two years, I want to say. I could be wrong. Um... But yeah, my friend's a pharmacist now, and she hates it and hates her life. But she likes the money, so yeah, it's 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 a good profession if you want to make cash. But I can see it could be somewhat miserable in terms of just the whole of how entertaining or enthralling the job is. You know what's crazy? They told um, my ex, who um, was who is is now a pharmacist, they told her that. In your career, in your entire career as being a pharmacist, you will um, be responsible. You will indirectly kill at least two or three people. Every every mm. pharmacist does. Wow! Because uh, whether it be a accidentally giving, well, you prescribe them something that is doesn't react with them well. Yeah, something. It was like, or you give them too much or too little or the wrong thing or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah, that was like the statistic. It was crazy. Well, it's like, wow, that's nuts. Um, so anyway, on July 19th, 1980, university officials notified Richard that he had been expelled. Richard begged Tanya to use her connections to get him readmitted. Finally, on September 2nd, my birthday, after months of Richard's increasingly erratic and sometimes violent behavior, Tanya broke off their engagement and kicked him out of her apartment. Good the fuck for her. Yeah, you rarely see that, you know? Like mm -hmm. a man treating a woman like shit and the woman's just like, fuck you, I'm out. Mm-hmm. So good for her. Yeah. Ultimately not good for her, but good for her in this current in this current moment mm -hmm. in, in the story. Um Two weeks later, Richard Bockledge returned to class pretending he had not flunked out. He played, yeah, this is this is crazy. He pulled a Larry David. <laughs> when Larry <laughs> David got fired from Saturday Night... Or Larry David quit Saturday Night Live, and then when he realized like how much money he'd be losing and shit, he just returned you know, Monday acting like as if nothing happened. And they were like, I thought you quit. And he's like, oh, that, that was just a joke. I, I didn't really quit. Come on. And they, and they bought it. <laughs> like, they bought it. They're like, oh, okay. So, um... See, so he's going back to class, acting like he hadn't flunked out, but university officials refused to accept him back. Bockledge wrote... The reenactment was fun, because the, the guy goes in, and he's just like in, you know, he gets out of the classroom, and then, and then the, you know, the university officials are like, hey, you know, uh, you're, you're, you, uh, you're not, um, you're not supposed to be here, you know, uh, I, you know, you need to talk to the other person or whatever to, to get your uh permission get permission to come back and it's like oh no I'm, I'm doing good my grades are better you know it's like well i'm sorry like you really you can't you cannot be going to class <laughs> i just find that crazy that 
somebody would actually try to pull that shit, you know, try to think that they pull the wool over the college's eyes, like, nah. <laughs> yeah, so... Come on, man. <laughs> uh, Bocklage wrote to the admissions office begging school officials to reconsider his case. Yep. His appeal was denied, and his secretary was ordered to call him with the news. On September 18th at 3.45, right after Bocklage got the call denying his request, two professors saw him driving towards the dean's office. They immediately headed in the opposite direction. Bocklage roamed the hallway searching for the dean of admissions. Under his arm, he carried a large manila folder. Some witnesses thought it hit a weapon. The dean wasn't in, so Richard left. That's creepy. Three hours later, Tanya returned to her apartment after work, but before she could get out of her car, she was shot three times in the head with a forty-five caliber semi-automatic. I think he was he was gonna shoot the dean. That was his initial plan. He was gonna shoot the dean, but then the dean wasn't there, so then he decided to take out his anger and frustration on Tanya instead. Yeah, 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 I think I think that too. By the time police and paramedics arrived, Tanya Koprick was dead. According to Detective Warren Miller with the Kansas City Police Department, quote, there was a witness at the scene who saw this man walk up to the side of the doctor's car and shoot her three times in the face. She recognized him as being the man that dated Dr. Koprick, Richard Bocklage. Later, during the investigation, we found out that Mr. Bocklage has purchased a forty-five caliber handgun himself. It, you know, it always bothers me in these police quotes when they're still referring to these pieces of shit as like Mr., you know, yeah. or like sir or the the gentleman yeah I, I don't know i almost feel like it's like a nicety that they shouldn't uh afford to these pieces of shit you know but anyway they gotta be professional you know especially on camera yeah six days later royal canadian mounted police found bocklage's car approximately 935 miles north of kansas city richard was seen by two people in the area he then dropped from sight Two months after Tanya was murdered, her parents in Yugoslavia notified police that they had received an unsigned letter that had been postmarked two days before the murder. The envelope was... And we actually have the full letter here. Yeah, I'll read that in a second. The envelope was addressed in Richard Bocklage's handwriting, and um, I will now read that letter. It says, Dear Coprick family, Please realize it is most difficult for us to write this letter. Us. However, we feel you deserve a complete explanation concerning the following events. Your daughter, Tatiana Koprick, has been executed in Kansas City, Missouri. She has caused so much grief, turmoil, and anguish to so many Americans that this act was necessary. Oh my God. Tanya had lost all sense of her parameters. She mocked our nation. She mocked our people. She, marked, she mocked our culture. She attempted to dictate her pervasive will on everyone. She had been asked to leave our country and she refused. It became clear that her only motive for being in this country was to become wealthy at the expense of anyone or anything. I hope you can begin to understand why her execution was inevitable. Please understand this act was performed by professional assassins and that no acts of revenge are possible. Sincerely, the people of the United States of America. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. You fucking it's Fucking sick. grade A nutball over yeah, here. Yeah, really. That sounds like somebody from like another country wrote it. That does not sound like yeah. some uh, US 
I, I love I love the uh, on Unsolved Mysteries like the the person who reads it is like the creepiest fucking guy ever. You know they they always have like the people read letters and stuff. It's that the creepiest voiceover. Please realize it is most difficult for us to write this letter. However, we feel that you deserve a complete ex explanation concerning the following events. Your daughter Tatiana Koprik has been executed in Kansas City, Missouri. She has caused so much grief, turmoil, and anguish to so many Americans that this act was necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, Mike, you do that a little too well. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's Richard Bockledge for you. Do we have any updates on what happened to this? Uh... Uh, no, he's still wanted for capital murder. Oh. He got away with it. Oh my. Apparently there's a man uh, in an obituary in Missouri named Richard Bockledge. Could be him, but... Don't know for sure. Yeah, they even give the link to the uh, obituary. Huh. Legacy.com. It's kind of a nice euphemism for people who are dead. The only legacy he has is being a fucking murderer, if you ask me. All right, so now we're going to go on to an article here called 27 Things You Probably Didn't Know About Unsolved Mysteries. Was this an article that was dropped in our group? Yeah. Yeah, see. I'm pretty sure stuff that we did know, but some there's still some nice stuff here. Wow, you didn't have to be all cocky about it just then, Mike. Pretty sure we <laughs> did know this already, but, you know, <laughs> all you plebs out there probably didn't. <laughs> you can't blame me. I mean, for, I'm just trying to, because there were some people, you know, in the past trying to say, they're not even really fans of the show. <laughs> oh, I don't think there's any of those people around anymore. But yeah, in all seriousness, though, a lot of you may already know this stuff, but... um. You know, there's some nice interviews and some nice stuff here. So, uh, number one, it started off as a series of specials. Yep. Knew that. The three specials called Missing, Have You Seen This Person, were hosted by David Burney and his wife, Meredith Baxter, and aired on NBC in April of 1986. The specials were so, the specials were so successful that producers Terry Dunn, Moyer, and John Cosgrove decided to broaden the scope of the show to include all kinds of mysteries. It wasn't always hosted by Robert Stack. Anyway, when what would become the pilot episode of Unsolved Mysteries debuted on January 20th, 1987, it was hosted by Raymond Burr. Carl Malden helmed the next two specials, and then Stack took over hosting duties, narrating the next few specials and the weekly episodes until the show went off the air in 2002. Later, when the show was revived, Dennis... Oh, God, I hate even saying it. Dennis, De I can't say the name. I can't. I can't. I refuse to acknowledge the Dennis Farina episodes. Okay? I refuse. They fucking blow. How can it? I don't know, man. I saw a Dennis Farina episode the other day. Uh, it was on one of my... I'm going through my old VHS tapes because I want me and Mike to watch one of them uh, and stream it and we can all watch old TV together. Uh -huh. I think that'd be an, a, a cool idea for um, the group or whatever. But anyway... Uh, yeah, Farina episode came on, and I, I just was watching it, and I'm just like, man, I just, I just can't watch this. This is just so soulless and, and sterile, and just none of the goodness was there. And it was yeah. so weird, because it came out in, like, what, 2007 or 2008, and, yeah. uh, you know... He's, and it's the old episodes from the 90s, and they were trying to make it seem like it was a new show of, of the 2000s. It was so weird. And, like, 
the people were clearly dressed from like the late 80s, early 90s yeah. with their big glasses and weird hair and uh -huh. shirts and shit. And it was just so anyway. Number three. <laughs> So in early episodes, the show didn't use actors in the reenactments. According to director David Vassar, who directed 100 segments of the show, in the early episodes, if there were any reenactments, we actually had the real people play themselves. That's why uh, the acting of these first seasons, when we were just getting our feet wet, was not up to snuff. As we went through the seasons, we were able to pay top dollar to get good people, so it just got better and better. Like fucking Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> yeah. Um, number four. Uh, and there's an easy way to tell if the actors were bad. Quote, this is an Unsolved Mysteries hallmark, and it's a secret, Vosser said in DVD commentary. But if the narrator talks a lot and the actors don't talk at all, it means the acting is really pretty bad. <laughs> and the narrator... <laughs> That's what we said. <laughs> yeah, and the narrator is going to cover everything up. If there's, if there's everything out in the clear between the actors, it means the actors were usually pretty good. So the game was, how many seconds of the sync sound takes could you get to play in the, uh, in the open? The more sync you got to play in the open, the better the scene. Pretty simple. That is interesting. <laughs> but that just proves that our, our theory was correct. Yeah. Because we were like that. We're like, yeah, it's probably... They suck. <laughs> and that's why there's so much narration. Number four. And there's an easy way to... Uh, actually, number five. The reenactments weren't the show's most important component, though. The interviews were so important to the way Unsolved Mysteries was produced, Cosgrove said. People would think that the most important thing was the recreations, but really having articulate people who can summon up the emotions of what it felt like was the key. Which is true. You trusted the interviews, added director Kiva Rosenfeld. If you didn't have that, you didn't have a good episode. Yeah, I mean, I would say especially on like, um, so let's just say, for instance, the Withville, Kentucky UFO segment. Yeah. If you didn't have Danny Gordon on there with his inter the, the interview with Danny Gordon... I mean, that, that segment wouldn't be shit. I mean, it would be still be creepy, but Danny Gordon, you know, he's this hometown radio DJ, and just his interview of him, you know, talking about what he went through and what happened, it was just awesome. Or then you got, you know, Don Devereaux. I mean, forget about it. In the Danny Casolaro yeah. segment, Don Devereaux was such a good uh, interview. Um, but even in the even in the interviews on the Dennis Farina show, like they're pretty crappy because they're edited. Oh yeah, and then they have chopped the stupid up. Zoom in crap or the techno whatever. They're trying to be fancy and have the digital the titles pop up on the screen, even with sound effects. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The, the post production was just it was like taking. It was obnoxious. Yeah, I mean, it, it was like taking something that already existed and was fine and, like, fucking it all up. It was like if I took, like, the Beatles, like, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and, like, overdubbed a bunch of my shitty guitar playing over the songs. <laughs> but, but you know, been like, hey, but it's new guitar playing. I recorded this in 2018, so it's kind of like a new album if you think about it. And it's like, no, you took a classic and you just fucked it up big time. For no reason. And that's what yeah. the new Unsolved Mysteries was. Number six, the show... But Dennis Farina, he's not... He's a bad host, but it's because he's bland. It doesn't really have a lot of personality. But he's not that bad of an actor. No, um, no, not at all. I, I would recommend uh, a show called Crime Story because he was actually a, a former police officer. And that was his acting debut. And it's actually pretty impressive. Michael Mann 
uh, produced it. It was uh, a show he did after Miami Vice. Oh, okay. Has has a crazy cast too, like really just all bunch of different uh, cast members and stuff like that. Take it's a throwback. It takes place, I think, in the forties or the fifties. So number six, the show's directors came from documentary filmmaking, which I mean that's pretty fucking obvious when you watch the show. Mm-hmm. We were all used to real life, said Vosser, and in the first couple of seasons, it shows. Only occasionally had we worked with actors, and if we did, we worked with actors as hosts because they were hosting a documentary we were making. In the beginning seasons, the show shot with a small crew, too. On the first season, it was basically a director, a director of photography, an assistant photographer, a sound man, a producer, and lighting or grip guy, Vosser said. There were five or six of us trying to make these little movies. It was like silent films in the 1900s. We did everything ourselves. And with their small crew, that is triple the size of my crew to make my YouTube videos. So they're already doing better than me. Yeah. Number seven, it was cheap to make. In the early 90s, an hour-long scripted drama cost about $1.5 million per episode. Cosgrove told the Baltimore Sun that Unsolved Mysteries could be made for 25 to 40% of that cost. If you're the president of NBC Entertainment, what show are you going to buy? The son asked, the one that costs 375000 to make and finishes 11th in overall ratings, or the one that costs $1.5 million to make and finishes 40th? Yeah, see, and that's the thing, too, is like, it, there, it, the sad thing about being a, an artist and being creative is there's so much more to just creating good art. You also have to have that business savvy. That, yeah, the politics. Yeah, that obviously Cosgrove had, because like he went in there... And it wasn't like he presented them the show and they're like, oh, this is brilliant. This is going to be a cult classic years from now. Put it on. You know, the network's still like, yeah, so what else? You know, what else? And then he's like, yeah, well, this show's way cheaper to make. Okay. You know, and it's just like, that's all it took. I mean, that's like, say, my music now. Like, I feel like it's really good. But, I, you know, I need that marketing and that business person behind me to like really sell it better, you know, because I'm not doing a great job on that. But anyway, moving on to number eight here, Robert Stack compared Unsolved Mysteries to theater. Quote, We're balancing two needs here, Stack told the Los Angeles Times in 1990. We're trying to produce theater and we're trying to do a public service. Stack's stage comparisons didn't end there. He saw his duty as host, according to Cosgrove, as akin to stage manager of Our Town, the three-act play written by Thornton Wilder. It takes place in the small town of Grover's Corners and features stories from a period between the years of 1901 and 1913. The stage manager served as a narrator. And of course Robert Stack would pick some obscure-ass play like Our Town that no one else in this century is going to know of or even have heard of. But hey, that's cool. (laughs) He's just so old school. Oh, very old school. Number nine, the show's four-segment format was designed to get viewers. The show segments covered a number of themes, including murder, missing persons, wanted fugitives, UFOs, ghosts, the unexplained, missing heirs, amnesia, fraud, yeah, missing... That's another one I'm not... I forgot about. I completely forgot about that. The missing heirs thing that they did briefly. That's another one I'm not really... Yeah, that, of, one kinda, that one kind of sucks. I mean, that one's not as bad as Lost Loves. Because, like... So, because with the with the missing heirs, like they they would usually cover this like lonely man or lonely old woman and their very particular lifestyle. Where they there was one that was interesting though, the one older woman that like cut all the photos with her in it and was just tried to erase everything about her and 
she made all this money and was this socialite and then and, and when she got older she just tried to just eliminate everything like you know lived by herself and as a hermit and was just eliminating all traces of her in her her abode i remember uh, there was one eerie. with an old man and he like he he lived on like yeah, that guy. An eighteen dollar yeah. budget a week or something uh -huh. like that, and he ate. Like, he lived at the YMCA, and he and he always ate the same thing. He had like a can of beans had, for lunch, you know, or yeah. something. It was some meek, but he had like and, a lot of money. And then he saved all these different things, like he saved everything, and then yeah. So, and there were other ones though, like Dan Willens, where you're like, yeah, the guy, the guy who's trying to. I think he's related to me, and then he's already rich. It's like, yeah, like, you need any more money. <laughs> uh, so, actually, uh, so so you have a missing heirs, amnesia, fraud, and more. Each show consisted of four segments, plus an update on an older case. Almost every show has an unexplained death in it, and almost every show has a lost love story, Moyer told the Los Angeles Times. Then we'll mix and match in there a legend or a gold mine, or, or we'll put one in one of our UFO stories. The idea, Cosgrove said was to have four different segments in four different areas so people would find something that they liked. And that's something that the show... That's that's a big reason why the show works so well is because of the variety. You know, a lot of the stuff that covers some of the same cases and some of the same type of stuff that you saw on the show, on like Investigation Discovery or whatever, it's just the same thing. It's missing persons, or there's a whole show dedicated to missing persons, or a show dedicated, dedicated to murderers, or deadly women, or whatever. Like, there's none of that variety. Yeah, and I mean, some could argue that that's like a a, a a formula for success, just doing the same thing over and over again. But I I argue that a variety is like this. I mean, this sounds so incredibly corny, but I feel like variety is a spice of life. You know, like that's how I know. <laughs> I knew you were gonna say uh, that. It sounds corny <laughs> as fuck. I know. If 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 you if you didn't say it, I would have said it. So there it's you go. It's just so damn fitting, you know. And and like yeah. that's how I run my YouTube channel, which I can't I I can't seem to do an episode of this without um, managing to talk about my YouTube channel. But yeah, like yeah, I uh, you know, I do like a video game video, I do a movie video, a TV video, like a I do everything, you know, because I feel like variety is a lot more fun than being pigeonholed into one kind of thing and that's this kind of the same well, thing i mean i did. try to do other stuff too i mean but oh i for mean the most part i do similar i, w things, I wasn't calling but... you out mike <laughs> i know anyway i know you weren't number 10 the spooky theme music was composed by gary malkin see this is gonna sound like really like it's gonna hurt my unsolved mysteries owner card here or fan card whatever you want to <laughs> call it but i never knew who the name of the composer was honestly well, now you know. Now I know. Anyway, Unsolved Mysteries original... And knowing is half the battle. Yeah. G.I. Joe. <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries original goosebump-inducing theme was written by Gary Malkin, who also served as the show's main composer. One of the things that really worked was the music, Cosgrove said. I had a lot of friends whose kids would run out of the room because the music scared them so much. <laughs> Producer Raymond Bridgers agreed. The music was so distinctive that you didn't even have to be in the room to know that Unsolved Mysteries was on. He said, yeah. the theme was updated four times, and when the show was revived in 2018, it came back with a new and shitty theme altogether. Yeah. I don't even remember that theme. Oh, I remember it. And I remember it because I I stored it away in my mind of an example of a bad theme song for a show. I think it was just like 
bunch of guitar music or something. I I don't remember much it was, of the it. Just but had your typical, mystery. yeah. It had some like guitar in there. It had your typical like, um, just piano rolls and creepy. Uh-huh. Like I don't know. It was like so watered down and wannabe. It was it sucked. With the the unsolved mysteries theme, like yeah, you could you knew that unsolved mysteries is on if you heard, you know the. Down, So, uh, and uh, are you going to that uh, listening party? Uh, yeah. I, Speaking I, of the I, theme, I think I am. I think I am going to go to a. Uh, so the the Terror Records is putting out Terror Vision, whatever. Yeah. They're putting out a <laughs> uh, soundtrack of Unsolved Mysteries music. I already pre-ordered my deluxe or whatever edition. Um, it, LP. Yeah, so they're having a listening party for that in Savannah, Georgia, which is about an hour and a half from me. And um, yeah, I think I'm actually going to go and try to record some stuff with my phone, just you know, for the group, you know, so join our Facebook group, and mm. you know, I, and I I see these listening parties; they're sprouting all over, you know, with people, you know, record stores and stuff. I would think they'd have one over here, but I, know. I haven't seen anything. That's really weird. Because, like, Washington and Oregon, like, you know, hipsters are everywhere over here. So, there's record stores all over the place. Yeah, I know. It's weird that they don't have it. But I, I want to check one Maybe of these Maybe they out. might later. I don't know. I've never been to a listening party in general, and I figured this would be a good, this would be a, a worthwhile thing to do for the podcast. You're just smoking a bowl and just listening. I swear to God, <laughs> if, it's, if, it's, if it's at some fucking hipster's house, <laughs> and it's like, there's like two other people there, I'm going to... I'm literally, I'm going to be pissed, but at the same time, I'm going to be glad because I'll finally be able to use the phrase, I drove all the way from Jacksonville for this, because I've never been able to use that phrase in my life. I've drove it all the way from A to yeah. to, to B, you know, uh-huh. so I'll be able to use that phrase officially, which I will definitely get on on recording yeah. if I if it so. is shitty. <laughs> So number 11, it pulled in great ratings. In 1990, the show ranked number 11 for all TV series that year. Once a sleeper, the reality series hosted by Robert Stack, the former star of The Untouchables, is now just a flat-out smash, the Los Angeles Times wrote two years later. In the last four weeks, for instance, the unshowy but rock-solid series has demonstrated its clout, ranking 3rd, 16th, and 8th, and 10th in the ratings. That was a lot of ands. It was nominated for six Emmys. The category was the Outstanding Informational Series, and Unsolved Mysteries was nominated in 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, and 95. Unfortunately, the show didn't win, losing out to PBS's Nature, Smithsonian World, The Civil War, TNT's MGN When the Lion Roars, PBS's Healing in the Mind with Bill Moyers, and PBS's Baseball and NBC's TV Nation. Boo! Yeah, pretty much. What the (laughs) fuck? All this crap. I mean, actually, I don't know. I'm sure a lot of that's pretty good TV, too. PBS Nature can be fun. Uh, The Civil War, it's probably well made, but uh, Snooze Fest. MGM sounds interesting to me. Uh, Healing the Mind. What? No. Baseball. I've heard really good things about that, but I'm not a baseball fan, so I probably wouldn't find that interesting. I mean, that's like telling me, like, would you rather have, like, a peanut or, like, a slice of pepperoni pizza? You know? And Unsolved (laughs) Mysteries is a pepperoni pizza. I'm picking the pizza, people. That's my analogy. That's my point. Yeah. Number 13, producers have some ideas about why the show was so successful. 
You think? <laughs> I would hope that they would have some ideas. <laughs> uh, number one, of course, was Robert Stack, whose poker face delivery could send chills up anyone's spine. Bob's contributions were immense, really impossible to calculate. Cosgrove said in a tribute to the actor after Stack's death in 2003. His fame and charisma helped attract an audience, said Bridges. No one could deliver a spooky line like Robert Stack. Number two, curiosity. Okay. People are fascinated by the idea that they might be living next door to one of these people and might be able to help find them, Moyer said he told the LA Times in 1990. And number three, one of the things that attracted people to the show was that they wanted to be scared. It's true. 14. Thanks to Jack the Ripper, there was an Unsolved Mysteries Halloween special. In its first year on the air, Unsolved Mysteries had a Halloween special, an entire hour devoted to ghosts. Quote, Bob was pretty skeptical at this point about doing an entire hour about ghosts, Cosgrove, Cosgrove said. Because he was, he was skeptical. He's skeptical about all of the, uns, uh, the unexplained yeah. stuff for the most part. Yeah, he was. He definitely, I don't think, thought it was a great idea for us to change the formula of having four segments of different categories for this Halloween special. It was a little risky doing an hour on one topic. It's, it's a fucking special, man. If people don't like it, they can get over it. I mean, it's special. <laughs> one time. We're not doing this all the time. Chill out. NBC had asked the producers to create a one-hour special, Cosgrove said, because the network, quote, had gotten wind that there was going to be a Jack the Ripper special in syndication, one of those live event specials that revealed the secret identity of Jack the Ripper at the end of the show. And they said, we want you to come up with a stunt program on Halloween. But we said, wait, we're, we're the people producing the Jack the Ripper special. We don't want to do that. And they said, we don't care. So we came up with this, which clobbered the Jack the Ripper special. I love that. After this, yeah. though, the show would occasionally do single topic shows. Number 15, the show once blew up a church. The segment Lucky Choir tells the story of a choir that met to practice every Wednesday night at 7.25 p.m., except one night when every choir member was late and as a result avoided an explosion at 7.27 p.m. that surely would have killed them. The producers chose a church in Unadilla, Nebraska, that was slated for demolition and planned an explosion. They flew a special effects expert to the site and surrounded the church with five cameras framed by plywood boxes that would protect the gear and the cameramen. We were supposed to cave in the roof, and we framed the shot slightly above the roof, Rosenfeld, who directed the segment, recalled. The special effects guy blew it up way bigger than we expected. A fireball went into the air, probably a quarter mile. We were all scared. <laughs> of course, hey, that makes sense. Like, you're just a little tiny explosion. We're, this, isn't, this isn't a blockbuster action movie. This isn't a Michael Bay film. So then all of a sudden, you know, all right, all right, action. <laughs> yeah, that explosion looked really good, too. Shrapnel speared the plywood boxes around the cameras and their operators, and debris rained down for 20 minutes. Okay, the way they they uh, wrote this sounds messed up. Speared their operators. Just... <laughs> so people died? What? They got speared by the shrapnel? The cameraman walked up to the macho special effects guy. I love he's calling him macho. Pretty angry and said, what did you put in there? And the macho guy goes, 95 sticks of dynamite and three 10-gallon tubs of gasoline. Oh, my God. It's like uh, Danny McBride's character in, in Tropic Thunder. Just wants to blow shit up real good. Rosenfield remembers, and we immediately rushed the site 
to film the scene because we couldn't recreate that. We knew we were we were not doing that. Dude, again. I know how I know how that is. Like when I was doing the video for uh, the music video for my song "Nightmare Inside You" um, for my band Dancing with Ghosts, there was a scene at the end where I had written in the script that we were going to be playing in front of this uh, DWG logo that we had made out of wood and we wrapped with cloth and we soaked it in gasoline and um, we lit it on fire and we had, you know, a very short amount of time that that DWG logo was going to, you know, be prime, you know, aflame. And we had to shoot it while that thing, you know, I mean, we had to get that. I mean, and if it and when it burned out, like the letters crumbled and shit. So we had one take or else we would have had to have done that all over again. It would have pushed the shoot back and we would have been off schedule and shit. So, yeah, I I get how um, how time consuming that can be. Number 16, a number of stars got their breaks on Unsolved Mysteries. In his first professional acting gig, Matthew McConaughey appeared as a, sh- as a shirtless, of course, murder victim in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. They got the guy, the Academy Award winner, told Entertainment Weekly in 2014. They found him around Bryan, Texas, about two weeks after that show. Virginia Madsen also co-hosted the show with Stack in 1999. Curb Your Enthusiasm, Cheryl Hines, Mad TV's Stephanie Weir, Saw's Ned Bellamy, and Lost Daniel Day Kim also appeared in episodes. Yeah, which we we actually interviewed the uh, sister of the guy Matthew McConaughey portrayed in that mm-hmm. segment. Um, her name was. Um, my mind is 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 fucking useless right now. I can't think of. I don't even know my own name right now. Like so, but it's <laughs> go to our interview. Oh, Donna Parks. Donna Parks. That was her name. There you go. Yeah, she's a nice lady. Anyway, number seventeen. One of the show's most popular segments was also tough to shoot. Oh wow! It was called Mystery Hum, the one that I thought we, we, we t- <laughs> the one I thought we hadn't talked about yet that we were totally gonna do this episode until I found out we had already talked about it like fucking seventy episodes ago. It was about the ta- Taos Hum, Taos Taos Hum, Taos Taos, so named because the low frequency sound began to be reported in Taos, New Mexico, in 1992. Director Bob Wise said the segment was particularly difficult to film because there weren't many visual elements for the audience, and the hum's low frequencies didn't come through televisions well. Still, he said, quote, We got a lot of response to this because a lot of people around the country and the world are hearing the same thing, and there's a whole network of people who hear this thing. I didn't know that Mystery with Hum was one of the show's most popular segments, but I do remember it stuck out to me like mm-hmm. a sore thumb as a kid. So apparently the... There was an X-Files episode that was inspired by the hum. Oh, okay. Number 18, the show used a visual effects company called Area 51. That's so cool. The company was tasked with creating the show's effects from sparking clocks to creepy ghosts to appropriately aliens. In fact, the Allagash abduction segment featured some of Cosgrove's favorite effects created by Area 51. We had such detailed paintings and drawings from the abductees... We based our special effects session on their drawings and paintings, not just from the descriptions. Allagash was a great segment, yep. whether it's real or not. Number 19. But sometimes they did effects the old-fashioned way. In Unsolved Mysteries' early years, visual effects weren't very advanced, and the show didn't have a huge budget for them either. Quote, When you're shooting ghost stories, it gets kind of tricky if you want to do it without special effects, director Bob, director Bob Wise said in a DVD commentary. The crew was forced to get creative. For ex- for the episode Gordy's Ghost, Wise chose to give the ghost an overblown white look. Quote, we put a lot of light on the face. The poor little girl could barely keep her eyes open. For another, for another sequence, <laughs> wow. 
that showed a ghost lying down next to a little girl on the bed. The crew took off the mattress and had the actor lie on the boxes and pull on the springs underneath to achieve the effect. Ghostly effects in other episodes were created in camera using double exposure and projection. Yeah, I think the one they're talking about with the actor lying on the bed, I think that's uh, the Kelsey House hauntings, mm-hmm. which is another lady we but, talked but, to. The, with the girl, like, that's that's really that's really too bad. I imagine that's, that had to be pretty uh, uncomfortable uh, to shoot that particular uh, I imagine segment. just working with kids in general when it comes to this kind of shit yeah. would just be, like, really, like, not And then ideal. you throw that on top of it? Oh, yeah. Man. I wonder what what they 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 probably didn't do anything that fancy for the the one with the uh, <laughs> Talk, talking about Tallman House ghost. Yeah, no, the, the other one. Remember the guy that that opens up with the ghost who's like oh uh, oh Devil's Backbone. Uh, 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 yeah. I don't know. They no. They remember because it looked like the Native American dude walking through the forest. It looked like they had like a damn yeah, spot like helicopter like with, the, with the guy w- who sounds like he was taking a shit. Like they like did they did they instruct him to do that? Like I swear that shit looked just like do it? I feel like that was around the time Mortal Kombat came out. I swear they were trying to copy like Raiden or something like some <laughs> Mortal Kombat shit. Um, Robert Stack. And the producers were pretty skeptical of the paranormal stuff. Though Stack was, in Cosgrove's words, terribly proud of her contributions to catching bad guys, he was pretty skeptical of the show's paranormal and extraterrestrial segments. In some of those narration sessions, sessions he'd be like, Come on, Raymond, Bridgers recalled. <laughs> but even Stack found, these, found some stories like the Allagash abduction segment pretty compelling. And one even nailed Bob, Cosgrove said. It got under its skin. He said that one even nailed him. The Allagash abductions. These guys were so normal and credible and stood to gain nothing by making up a story. As many as 80% of the supernatural cases were dismissed outright, according to Bridgers. But like Stack, the producers found themselves swayed by certain stories. That's a lot. That's a pretty high percentage. Yeah. Yeah, there's certain stories on sightings that Unsolved Mysteries would be like, nope. <laughs> uh, when we pick a ghost story, we're always mindful of those stories where there seems to be a historical reason for there to be a haunting. Cosgrove said in the DVD commentary for the Black Hope Curse. I don't think any of us, when we started Unsolved Mysteries, really believed in ghosts. We've all had to take a second look at our preconceived notions after the experiences that we've had. Initially, we'd be very skeptical of stories, and when you find that there is a story, there are that there are facts and history and accounts from the past that match up to what people see, it takes your breath away. And it makes the stories a lot more credible. I just love how Robert Stack, you know, he's just like, oh, come on! <laughs> Come, on, Come on, Raymond. Raymond. <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> Not everyone wanted their mystery on Unsolved Mysteries. In the early days of Unsolved Mysteries, it could be tough to get people who'd had supernatural experiences to peer, uh, appear on the show. They were afraid, Cosgrove said, of exposing themselves to potential ridicule. Back then, people didn't want to come out of the woodwork to say they'd seen ghosts, he said. It was really tough to get people to agree to do the interviews. Still, there seemed to be some therapeutic value in it for the interviewees. Having us talk to them and pay such close attention to them and help them explain it to the public seems to help them, Cosgrove said. Number 22, they filmed many of Stack's segments at a Masonic temple. Masonic. The temple was lo- Masonic temple. The temple was located in Pasadena, California. We liked it as a set because it evoked ghostly spirits and things like that. <laughs> Cosgrove said. 23. Unsolved Mysteries ran on four networks. 
The show spent 10 seasons on NBC before moving to CBS, where it aired for two seasons before being canceled. It later ran on Lifetime and on Spike TV, which was the biggest fucking ex- horrible excuse for anyone. Went from Lifetime uh, television for women to Spike TV television for men. <laughs> uh, the reality show spawned TV movies. Victim of Love, the Shannon Moore story, which aired in September of 1993, was based on an unsolved mystery segment from November 1987. In the movie, Moore, played by Sally Murphy, marries Dave Davis, Dwight Schultz, in a quickie Vegas ceremony. She soon discovers that he's a pathological liar who neglected to tell her about his first wife. When Moore dies of what appears to be a horse riding accident, her parents become suspicious. John J. O'Connor, who reviewed the movie for the New York Times, wrote, The parents embark on a 10-year campaign to seek justice. A journalist and a detective proved most helpful. Confronted, confronted with mounting evidence against him, Dave flees the country, finally ending up in American Samoa. How can he be found? There's one possibility left, says the detective. Unsolved Mysteries. And so we find the actors in the movie recreating the interview the real parents gave in the Unsolved Mysteries broadcast. We need to see this. <laughs> the repackaging turns out to be an ingenious plug for the series itself. Actually, Dave wasn't captured for more than two years after the original telecast. Credit seems must go to the reruns. Marketing comes full circle. Other TV movies followed, Escape from Terror, The Teresa Stamper Story, A Voice from the Grave, and The Sleepwalker Killing, which actually has a young Hilary Swank in it. Yeah, we're supposed to cover some of these at some point, right? Yeah, we should sometime, yeah. 25, it had a dramatized spinoff. It was called Final Appeal from the Files of Unsolved Mysteries. According to a synopsis from the New York Times, the show was, quote, a reality-based series based on the NBC series Unsolved Mysteries. It examines real-life cases of of potential injustices involving convicted persons who, according to impartial observers, may be innocent. Stack hosted. Final Appeal premiered in September 1992 and was canceled shortly after. I got to check out one of those, man. I didn't know Stack hosted that. Number 26. Many of the mysteries actually got solved. Join me. Perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. Stack said at the beginning of each episode. The show asked its viewers to call police or a tip line if they had any information on a crime, missing person, or lost loved one. And boy, did they. The LA Times wrote about one case that appeared on Unsolved Mysteries in 1988. It was no mystery to Jerry Strickland and Melissa K. Mundy when police showed up at their door in Moses Lake, Washington. Hours earlier, they had been watching the television as the show Unsolved Mysteries mentioned them in connection with the unsolved robbery and slaying of a gas station worker near Pontiac, Michigan. Police got about 15 calls from area residents after the program aired, and Officer John Mays and Sergeant Dennis Duke arrived to find the couple waiting for them. I don't remember that. Did we... That was an early segment. I think that's from the first season, I think. Unsolved Mysteries covered more than 1,000 cases, and according to its website, more than half of the episodes featuring wanted fugitives have been solved. Over 100 separated families have been reunited, including Leanne Robinson, who ran away from her father's home when she was 16 and found her brother and sister years later through the show. I was standing there in the studio after the program ran, and this guy came over and said, I have your sister on the phone. Robinson said, I just wanted to cry. I cried for a week. And finally, you can still help solve a mystery. Though the show isn't currently in production, visitors can submit information that might pertain to an unsolved crime on the show's website. But it just isn't currently in production doesn't mean it won't be back. In April, the show's creators participated in a Reddit AMA where they said they were actively, quote, in the process of reaching out to networks to see if there is interest in ordering new shows. Let's keep our fingers crossed. And this was in 2017, so... Yeah. 
So it might happen. No new information. All right, guys. Uh, that's all the time I have uh, for this week. I'm fucking starving. I'm 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 <laughs> I'm uh what's the word? Fa- famine. I'm famished. There you go. God, I am getting dumber <laughs> every day. I get. I will be dumber tomorrow than I am today and even still more dumb a few weeks from now. Jesus. Start uh, reading some books. I need to do know? like luminosity or lumosity or whatever it's called. Do the brain tease. Do some brain teasers or something. I'm all, My brain's been teased daily by the world. <laughs> um, all right, so that's that's a podcast. Uh, anyway, you can find us uh, various places. I already said most of them. You can find us on YouTube. Find Mike on YouTube by going to youtube.com slash OCP Communications. He does movie reviews mainly. What was that last movie you reviewed, Mike? Upgrade. All right, well, that, there you go. Yeah, it was a 2018 sci-fi uh, film that I was looking forward to. It was disappointing because... Decided to do some stupid bullshit twist at the end, and yeah, did, not a did, fan. It, did they downgrade it? Yeah. Yes. You can find me on YouTube by going to youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts, and uh, I just recorded my magnum opus, Big Fucking Truck, and it's about big fu- <laughs> And it, it, it is really Man, great. I'll tell you what, buddy. It's about big fucking trucks, ice cold beer, and hot, scantily clad women shaking their asses. It's a it's a professionally produced music video. It looks amazing. It's in 1080p. It, it, I mean, I don't know what more you 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 motherfuckers want. Just go check it out, man. That's all I got to say. Big fucking truck coming at you. But uh, yeah, as for that, um, we're gonna start the uh, process of figuring out what to do for a hundredth episode. Like you know, getting them um, Q and A's out to make sure everybody can participate and. Do all that business. Please buy a mm-hmm. t-shirt, t-shirt to support the podcast. Um, which the again that link is in the description. Um, thank you. We love you. We miss you. Kiss you forever. Goodbye. See ya. What's up, everybody? Josh here. Just wanted to let everyone know that my new album, The Nightmare Inside You, is now available on Bandcamp, Spotify, and iTunes. Thank you for any and all support. It means the world to me.
Can you imagine Dr. Phil in, in prison? Like, would he would he be talking all hard in his Dr. Phil voice, or would he just I will be... skull fuck you! You need to take <laughs> responsibility for your own unhappiness! How's that working for you? I will fly great... you, all expenses paid, to rehabilitation, but you gotta agree to stick to the program. <laughs> that sounds like a great skit. Really does. I'm surprised I haven't done that before. I just love the the, the 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 description of that Bill Burr gave Dr. Phil that he looks like a crooked cop. <laughs> well, he does. He looks like Gary Kitchell. That's the perfect <laughs> description. Dr. Phil looks like the fuck. He looks like the fucking stereotypical crooked cop, and he's fucking Gary Gitchell. From- yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Hank Kingsley from the Larry Sanders Show, which is a more obscure reference that nobody is uh-huh. gonna get because nobody watched that show except me. A lot of like big celebrities liked that. That was like a hot show in the '90s. It was like a real subversive, like trendy, like show, mm-hmm. kind of edgy, you know. And now it's like yeah. no one even talks about it. Yep. All right, you ready? Yeah, as ready as I'll ever be. Yeah. All right. This is episode ninety-eight. Yeah, I'm like, uh, I can be funny sometimes, but I'm like really bad thinking on my feet like quick i do all right with improv but not with that kind of improv yeah it's it's you know yeah like there's this like security guard that works for the applebee's i dj at i know folks my life is that glamorous and exciting (laughs) um and i heard applebee's is in trouble man that's uh, oh yeah that's old news it's been in trouble for the past like seven years um yeah but anyway there's a security guard i swear and he's like around the same age as me I swear this this kid must have been the insult master in his high school because like <laughs> anytime I jokingly like insult him he com- he comes back instantly with just a a bone crushing comeback. He just shreds you. Yeah, he just yeah. shreds me. He just he he dresses me down and I'm I have nothing to say back to it. And I'm like, "How do you come up with a comeback that quickly?" Like I'm so f- Do you remember any of his comebacks? Um, they're usually like, you know, basically calling me gay, you know, in, in, in various, various ways, very yeah. various ways of telling me I like dick, uh, you know, the yeah. typical, the typical insults that a, a high school level brain would. Well, then it's not really that impressive then if it's just not, you know, very different, but they're like, insults they're somewhat me. creative though. Like I can't think of oh, any okay. of them now. Like one of them involved mayonnaise in, in the, in the insult. I don't know. <laughs> I don't quite remember how it went, yeah. but yeah, it was, uh, you know, for a high school level comeback, it was, it was probably the- something that you, you like mayonnaise type stuff or whatever. I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I, I get you could you could tell him you should just shut up and blow away. <laughs> yeah, sometimes like I have come back <laughs> with stuff like that. I'm like, well, fuck you, which is like that. That's just such a cop out. Yeah, comeback. Well, it reminds me of it. Remi- I was watching uh, Russell Peters, like some old stand up with Russell Peters, and he was talking about there was this uh, Cantonese or some other guy, or yeah, I think it was a Cantonese guy who would insult him. And he would do it like that. It was just, he'd just be like, you fucking blowjob. It's just like, he just calls a fucking blowjob. <laughs> fucking blowjob. And Russell Peters is like, how, how do I, how do I come with a comeback for that? How and, do I become a human embodiment of a blowjob? And is, it's like, how do I, how do I cut? I can't, I can't come up with a comeback for that. It's There's true. No yeah, he shut him down. <laughs>
I was watching this video on YouTube about how Donald Trump pretty much used memes to to become president. And it was actually pretty compelling because it's like a meme is basically just like a, a thing that is said or. Well, yeah, there were a lot of people who jokingly voted for Trump. Seriously, there were a bunch of, you know, meme lords and edge lords who just voted for Trump, you know, because it's funny. Well, Seriously. like he used he he came up with like all these little buzzwords and all these little like memeable moments like him talking about Rosie O'Donnell. And it just it just put it just kept him in people's minds more so than Hillary, I guess. That's that, anyway, that's what he was alleging. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm not even about to get on Donald Trump. Let's.